This podcast is part of the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts, visit red5network.com. Do you like sci-fi, fantasy, action, adventure, and comic books? Then you've come to the right place for your weekly dose of anything and everything geek. So strap in and let's get this show on the road. Welcome to the Science Fictionary Podcast. Welcome back, sci-fi fans, to another episode of the Science Fictionary Podcast. I'm Andrew. I'm here tonight with Marisha. Hey, everybody. And David. Hey-o. And special guest DJ from the Star from Star Wars and Beyond, which I'm gonna let uh, DJ. I want you to tell us a little more because you're rebranding. I mean, people aren't gonna know the Star Wars and Beyond name just yet because you kind of just made the switch. But uh, I wanted you to tell everybody about your podcast and where to find it. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so my podcast used to be Star Wars through the ages. Uh, I've been big on Twitter. Uh, still part of the Red 5 network. Uh, but for over the last uh, several weeks, uh, I've been talking about other stuff other than Star Wars. I also do Rogue One Radio with Steve Long, and we do a lot of Star Wars talk there. And Star Wars isn't the only fandom uh, in my life that has uh, been a great influence. Uh, so this gives me an opportunity to talk with other people that might not be regular Star Wars uh, aficionados uh, about other things, uh, you know, such as uh, right now we're doing a story or a series on Chronicles of Narnia, uh, which has been a lot of fun. Uh, But yeah, it gives us a chance to do that. Uh, My uh, Red 4 Charlie is uh, still my Twitter handle, uh, but it's just when you pull it up and says Star Wars through the ages, it'll say uh, Star Wars and beyond. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing some of the other stuff. I, I need to catch up. I'm really I've really been itching to listen to your Narnia series, which, you know, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan, a uh, huge fan of those books and a big fan of his theological books as well. Um, mm-hmm. But the <clears throat> also an, a topic that's very closely tied in some ways to what we're discussing tonight with, you know, mm-hmm. two good friends who used to sit around and share a drink and talk about what a tree meant, (laughs) right? All the implications of the word tree. (laughs) So, uh, really excited. I mean, we're, we're covering, we're doing an entire month of. Did, did we let in, did we say hello to David? We did say hello to David. All right. Sorry. Sorry. I I just, I thought we'd skip David. (laughs) David, David didn't need to tell us about his podcast because it's true. (laughs) This is, it. <laughs> this is it. This is the one. All right. So, as you know, we're we're spending the entire month of April talking about Tolkien and everything related to it. And we're going to talk movies. We've got a lot of guests coming up through the month. We've got... We're, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. We're going to talk about the books and the movies and how they kind of compare. We're going to talk about... The, the question I asked on Twitter earlier is, you know, and, and I'm going to ask you all tonight, what is it about these books that make them that the, the, the reason why have they lasted stood the test of time and been beloved by multiple generations. There's not just a ton of books that you can say that about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and of course we just mentioned another one, uh, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia have been the same way. 
Uh, they just mm -hmm. unfortunately haven't gotten the same caliber of movie treatment. That, no, they, they started off real strong, but Prince Caspian did not live up to the expectations that uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe raised. Right, and well, nobody went into those with like enough... I mean, there was going to have to be some real drive behind something to get the whole thing out mm -hmm. in a timely manner while, you, while the kids were still young enough to, to do it. Right. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, they did the first movie, and then it, the, the, it changed hands, correct? Yep. Like, it, it kept bouncing from company to company. It was just kind of a mess. And No, no, no. Disney did make Prince Caspian. They made the first two. But then they they, decided they passed on, on the third one, so Fox did, did The Voyage right. of the Dawn Treader. Yes. So, um, I'm really looking. I, I want to hear, uh, we haven't had a chance to talk to you. I mean, how long have you been a Tolkien fan, DJ? Wow. Uh Tolkien was one of the first books that I can remember really reading uh, as a 10, 11 year old. Um, I was really looking for something uh, along the lines of Star Wars. Uh, and my mom, who is a very avid reader and uh, sci-fi uh, fantasy fan, uh, had all the books and uh, she said, "Well, if you're really into that, you're you, and you're really going to enjoy these." And as soon as I started reading it, I got I was hooked. Just the level of detail that Tolkien went into setting the scene, right. uh, even if I didn't understand all of the implications and everything situations that were going on, uh, I could really get into his. Uh, his idea and how his imagination worked, uh, and he painted such a beautiful picture. And ever since then, I've uh, I reread the books about every two years or so, uh, and uh, the movies I definitely were a big fan of when they came out yeah. as well. Uh, I actually got to see a screening for the fellowship of the ring before it ever hit theaters. Oh, that's, oh, awesome. that's uh, awesome. I was working for a company called games workshop that does tabletop miniatures. And, uh, they were, um, picked to do a tabletop game featuring the Lord of the Rings characters from the movie. And we went to Baltimore, and uh, a few of the managers got to get a sneak peek uh, at the fellowship. And yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, the movies are amazing, and it and it's interesting because when you start walking down a list of the differences between the books and the movie, there mm -hmm. there's a lot of differences. Mm -hmm. Now, and I think it's a real testament to the story that. It survives those changes, and, and they're good. And the changes, most of the changes they made, I think, are, are good. They're good for the flow of the story on screen. They're, they're good to make it a movie. Right, because you don't need mm -hmm. pages of exposition on what a tree is right. put on screen. Right. So I think right. that most of the changes are good. There's a few things that I think we all would have loved to have seen, and we're going to talk about some of those mm -hmm. later. But it's a real testament to this story that... Despite those changes, the core of that story and what that story is and what that story is telling us about 
humanity is it all bleeds through and it and you you come out of the movie with the same kind of feeling that you have from reading the book yep yeah i think the yeah. movie um so I, I obviously i saw the movies first uh, i think that's probably most people at this point and now i've gone back and um i don't i didn't have the time to read fellowship but i really wanted to so i uh, listened to the audiobook, and I, I really enjoyed the audiobook. But I found that everything that was removed, I felt like I understood why it was. I understood why it was, and the same feeling I got when I finished the audiobook is—it's the same feeling I have when I finished the movie. I think it does capture exactly what it needed to in the movie. Um, right. I think it did a great job picking and choosing what to put in the two hour movie. Well, mm-hmm. theatrically two hour movie. Uh, <laughs> right. And I don't remember exactly. They were pretty long in the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember exactly how long, but they were all pushing or at least three hours. Correct. I mean, I remember seeing them in the theater and it was a big deal. How long they were. I think they were like two and a half hours. Is that it? I think so. I, I believe so. I think two and a half was about maybe two forty-five. Uh, but even then, most uh, most movies were at the time were running, uh, you know, maybe hundred ten uh, ninety minutes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, they were very very long. I remember at the time thinking, "Wow, this is a really long time to sit in the theater and and watch a movie because it just really was." But it's the crazy thing. You take these long movies and you make these extended versions and put all the stuff that got cut out back in and they're just even better. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, we, we're very absolutely. able. We're, yeah. You know, go ahead. Uh, I just, uh, the, the movies did well to capture the spirit. Yes. Of the books. Yeah. Uh, you get, uh, yes, there were changes made, but you still feel like you are there in Middle Earth. Uh, you know, so uh, to me, yeah, it, it did a good job with that. You know, you're not going to get everything, even with the extended cuts of the movies. Uh, you still had to uh, leave some things out. There is just so much detail that are in the books, right? Uh, to make it bearable. You know, to watch in any amount of run uh, run time, even if it was a you know Zack Snyder, um, you know Justice League recut at four hours, that you're still there's still so much other stuff that's going to have to get cut out of there. Right. Um, I did find I was kind of reading a little earlier about a lot of the changes, and I I found a a quote from Peter Jackson that I had not actually seen before. Uh, where he said one of the biggest problems with adapting the books, Tolkien gave his characters a fairly leisurely journey, and I don't mean the length of the journey, but rather the lack of dramatic tension, especially pre-Rivendell. And for the movies, we will have to make motivations a little tighter and more urgent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I do see that, like it's the way the story's told without adding some dramatic tension isn't ne- wouldn't necessarily translate well to the screen. Yeah. And honestly, it, you know, kind of jumping ahead and, and we are going to come back around to this, but I do think maybe that's why 
the Tom Bombadil stuff kind of got cut because mm-hmm. I think you you build this dramatic tension and then you go see Tom Bombadil, like yeah, yeah, because you were getting that relief from you already had this space in the story at Rivendell where you're getting a break from the dramatic tension, mm-hmm. and you didn't need two yeah. breaks in the first part of the movie from that. And so I do think I understand, although I think with the Barrow Whites cut out probably the scariest scene that Tolkien ever that wrote. That is true, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, the, yeah, and you're absolutely 100% correct on that. Yeah, we had, uh, there, the in the book, there was so many peaks and valleys. Right. That you would go, uh, you'd, you'd finish an action scene and then you'd have just a brief period of peace, only to find themselves almost directly back into another piece of action. And then once that was, you know, uh, finished, then, you know, instead of having some downtime, it was almost, all right, well, now we're on to the next action scene. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's just there's so many, it'd be almost like watching a roller coaster uh, you know, a four-hour roller coaster. If you were to try to put everything in there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, four-hour roller coaster. Uh, if you put everything in there, it'd be, it'd be full of songs. Yes, many, many <laughs> lots songs. and lots of songs. <laughs> yeah, and they did with the Hobbit. They tried to put more of the songs in, but yeah, you, and I loved it. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's you're right. I mean. But that's the thing. That's the beauty of Tolkien's writing is he he puts us in this world where there's there's religion and there's there's culture. culture. I mean, you know, you've got mm-hmm. stories and myths and legends and songs that date back thousands of years and you know, it, it's it's so immersive. I, Tolkien, I read I read The Hobbit when I was nine. I read The Lord of the Rings probably at like eleven or twelve, and and I don't know how many times I read The Hobbit before I read because I would read The Hobbit and then read another book and then go back and read The Hobbit again because I loved it so much. Mm-hmm. And it's really responsible for my current for for my lifelong obsession with immersive fictional worlds. Um, you know, Star Wars, you've got people in charge of writing Star Wars that say canon's not important. And I'm like, no, canon canon is absolutely important. It's critical <laughs> to holding everything. the world together. So, um, so it, it's an incredibly immersive world. And it's one that even at 40 years old, I'm still digging through all of Tolkien's writing, the histories of Middle Earth, and and just, you can just go down that rabbit hole for just endless hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're completely uh, transported away. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. Uh, it's, uh, now I'm going to have to pick up the book and reread it again, just, <laughs> yep. uh, j- j- just because. And uh, I've tried to get my kids to, to read it, and when they see the size of it, they're like, yeah, no, uh, <laughs> right. No, they won't even pick up Narnia just cause it's all seven books into one book. And yeah, oh, right. That's like, over a thousand pages. And, yeah. And start reading, you'll get sucked <laughs> in and you'll right. be, you know, halfway through it before you know it. And, but no, we'll just watch the movies. <laughs> yeah. That's and funny. I get it. I really do get not wanting 
to read those books because personally I love like if, if the book isn't over a thousand pages, I don't want it. Um, I, I want to uh, be buried in the lore and the history. And, and I said it on last week's podcast, but I want to know the name of the cousin of the brother of the neighbor <laughs> of the grandfather mm-hmm. of the King. Like no I want to know those things. Tolkien um, has you covered all about it. And he would tell me, yes, yes. he would. And, <laughs> and I want to know who wrote the song that they're singing and why they're saying those words. And I want to hear the whole song uh, personally. But well, there were times like listening to the audio book. I'm like, okay, another song. All right. And then five minutes later would pass. And I'm like, they're still singing this freaking <laughs> song. Like, <laughs> you know, I would kind of like phase out. But I, I still – I enjoy that. Yeah. Um, but – I totally get why it's cut for the movies because like we don't need all of it. You really don't need all of it for the heart of the story. And I also agree with the dramatic tension part because, you know, in the books, what is it like many, many years pass between the birthday party and Frodo leaving, mm-hmm. and he buys the house, and he's 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 telling this whole story that he's moving, mm-hmm. and and Mary goes ahead of him to set up the house, and he gets all the stuff together. Mm-hmm. You got all the stuff with the with the other Baggotsons and 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 all that stuff. And like the truth is, like I, I, cool, I like it. None of that <clears throat> really matters mm-hmm. to the story, right? Yeah, and it, and it's one yeah. of those things where and you always always should take this and reflect it through the lens of, of remembering that he was writing these stories for his son, Christopher. Large, mm-hmm. Largely. And, you know, Christopher was his primary sounding board for, for these stories. Mm-hmm. And I, I do kind of wonder if the, the, especially given the resurgence of Tolkien in the 70s, uh, 60s and 70s, when it became hugely popular. Mm-hmm. And that was right before Star Wars. Like, there is a connection between Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, and not just that they're both fantasy stories, but what David's talking about, I want to know the name of that person standing in the corner over there. It's like, Star Wars fans are the worst about that, right? Like, Star (laughs) Wars fans want a story for every character that ever walks in front of the camera. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's like, Absolutely. it's like you kind of have to wonder if it was this immense depth of world created by Tolkien that made people view characters in the background that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think it sort of I, set I up this expectation. Um, and I don't think that that's fair to other creators. No, it's not. Uh, to be honest, it's, it's really not. But it did sort of set up this expectation of well, well who's that and who's that and you gotta tell me about it and if you're not telling me about it then you're a bad writer i would say that uh the modern day equivalent of that is probably george r, r. martin and like just the game of thrones show mm-hmm. was so detailed with its characters that now when a new show comes out there's like you you either have to go super deep into a character like the random character that you introduce you have to bring them back later or don't do it at all because what's going to happen is and i guess this has been around forever but what's going to happen is people are going to attach to that one character that was mentioned one time 
and they right. are going to build an entire fan base around it online. They are going to make blogs about him. Uh. They are going to have Tumblr <laughs> fan pages. They are going to have video essays all about him. And they're going to want to know more about him, and they're going to make stuff up. And it is, it is, it is an unfair expectation. Yeah. Uh, for for that to be a thing. Now, I enjoy when that's done, but like I said, like you don't need that kind of stuff in a story. Tolkien didn't need it. I'm happy he put it there. Tolkien I, wrote. I, I was a historian it. and a linguist, and that's how he wrote stories. And he he wrote them mostly for himself. True. I like, love it. He Good. he wrote yeah. them to be shared, you know, like he shared them with other people. He sh- he had them published, but his but, primary goal was not to be the next great author. No, it was to it was to create right. this cool world, mm-hmm. you know, and this cool story. That that was really, of course, I'm sure he would be appalled if he heard me call it a cool world. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think oh, uh, that? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, no, that's all right. Go ahead. Do you think that that maybe a big reason for his popularity, because this just occurred to me, and I'm sure it's something that many people have thought about before, but do you think maybe a big reason for the success of Tolkien and and these books and this world is, is because they were written at a time when the world was at a very bad place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to have such a detailed world to escape into... Like, it's one thing to read a book, well, it's n- but it's another yeah. to completely be transported into another world. Yeah. Another world where Nazis aren't doing horrible things, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I do think that it came about at a perfect time in history where, I mean, there's a lot going on. You know, the first book comes out in 1937 in, in England and 38 over here and... You're, you're kind of in the build-up to World War II. You've still got a generation that fought in one of the most horrible wars ever fought, including Tolkien himself. Mm-hmm. And you've dealt with the, you, you know, you, you've been dealing with the economic crash. And it's this time of, of turmoil. And you can escape into this world that it doesn't take you totally away. It, it takes you into another world of turmoil, but it takes you into one that's a story of, of clearly good versus clearly evil where good triumphs. And it, I think that it does the most important thing that a story like that can do. And it does the same thing. It's why I've often said the only storyteller that I'm really willing to like even have sort of approach the next Tolkien is George Lucas because he did the one really, really important thing and he captures, he, he, he takes you. It doesn't matter whether you're a child or an adult. He, he throws you into this world that allows your childlike wonder to, mm-hmm. to really reach out. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, I mean, uh, going on adventure. Uh, a couple of points I'd like to make, uh, yeah. One, you're talking about, uh, and this is another connection to Star Wars, uh, about how uh, Star Wars fans want to know, you know, who's the uh, uncle's brother's cousin that's in the room. Mm -hmm. How, if it wasn't for Tolkien in his world and the way he crafted his world, do you think that we would have gotten an explanation on who Will Rowe Hood was? (laughs) Yeah, it seems. Probably not. 
Yeah. It seems unlikely. And most people still, I mean, and, and they might not be familiar with him, but he was the, uh, you know, the ice cream guy that mm-hmm. uh, in Empire Strikes Back that's right. running through, uh, you know, uh, Cloud City. Uh, or even, and I'll go out on a limb here and say, even Boba Fett. Yeah, that's Boba true. Fett in the original trilogy was on screen for six minutes and 32 seconds. That's it. 13 seconds of that was just his ship only, and only one scene was over one minute long. It's wow. just bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. But people wanted to know, who who is this guy? He looks cool. What's going on? And so we got the answer. And I don't think that if we had um, gone through uh, the descriptions in the uh, that Tolkien gives to every character... Uh, I don't think that uh, we would have known uh, a lot of the details, and it's glorious that we get to. Right. Yeah. My other point was uh, you brought up that how the popularity uh, really got huge in the 70s and 80s. Right. And that, I would say, is due to Gary Gygax who was the creator of Dungeons and Dragons. Hmm. Yeah, that was one of the things that certainly, I mean, the, the hippies really latched on to um, Tolkien's world. But yes, um, the Dungeons and Dragons, man, it, 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 it borrows so heavily. I mean, it, it, it's the same type of fantasy world. And yeah, I think that really evoked a lot of the same spirit of adventure and, um, I think they constantly feed into each other and off of each other. They kind of have a symbiosis yeah. going at this point. Yeah. I, I, I've been a Dungeons & Dragons player since the uh, mid-80s. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's uh, after reading, uh, you know, The Lord of the Rings, uh, it's like, man, I want, I want more. I want to do more of this type of reading and more of the interaction and so i got started playing the game where i could create a character that i could base off of someone that i would probably see in this mm-hmm. uh, thing and there's rules for it and right. uh and it's highly structured but your imagination can just go wild uh with this and so it was just a a perfect world yeah, my main Dungeons and Dragons character is straight up Aragorn. <laughs> like unapologetically, I was like, "All right, guys, listen." So this character is Aragorn because they were like, you know, "Oh, tell us about him." Like it's Aragorn. Like, it's, <laughs> his name's different, but like let's just make it easy. I'm not even gonna lie to you and pretend because you're gonna notice it. It's Aragorn. <laughs> so that's good. Everything I needed to know. Lost the prince. Uh, true king of a <laughs> of an empire. He's a ranger, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Hey. But I think that's a great observation, and I think that's true. Yeah. And you know, and, and kind of circling back, you know, David, you talked about the songs, and of course, in the book, the songs are, you know, they, they're largely left out of the movie, but in the books, they're Tolkien's way of evoking the history of Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. And that's really where he first began to flesh out the histories was through song. Mm-hmm. These random songs that they were singing. And we don't we don't really get much of that, like you said, in Lord of the Rings. But we do in, I guess it's in 
fellowship. Fellowship that we get Aragorn kind of singing, yeah, yeah, singing uh, the the legend of uh, or the the story of uh, Baron and Luthien. The lay, right? Isn't it called yeah. the lay of yeah. of Baron and Luthien? Yeah, yeah. He's just kind of singing it, you know, and and somebody asks him, you know, what what is what is the song? He said it's about a an elvish maiden who loved a mortal man. And they mm-hmm. say, well, what happened? What happened to her? And I mean, of course, we know lots of things happened to her, right? There's right. A, like there's this whole epic, but he says she died. You know, and that really sets a really interesting stage for him, kind of going forward in his interactions. Obviously, him, the mortal man, with the uh, with the elvish maiden. Um, in his own life. Um, but yeah, that's, that's one of the interesting kind of ways we see the movie kind of latching on to that, that sense of history that um, the books really create, a sense of this world that you just are kind of like peeking into. Mm-hmm. Uh, David, I wanted to ask you in particular, because you're the only one here, or I guess maybe Marisha to some extent, but... Um, Marisha, at least, I think, was kind of aware of Lord of the Rings to some extent. But you fully started off with the movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then you went back and, and did the book, or at least Fellowship. Is Fellowship the only one you've actually made it through? Yeah, Fellowship is the only one I've made it through. Okay. So, what was that like for you? Like, what jumped out? when you went back to the book from watching the movie, like what kind of jumped out the most? It was very confusing at first. Um, because I kind of go into it with this expectation of how the story is going to go. And you know, for the most part, it's it's the same story, but there's a lot, they start talking, they start throwing out names and stuff. And who's fatty Bulger is new to me. Yeah. I, and I really, I, I knew there'd be a lot more details, but I did not expect like this whole new world kind of, uh, to be thrown onto me, all this history. And, mm-hmm. um, what stood out to me the most, at least at the beginning was how long it took, uh, for them to actually get on the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the big one. Yeah. It's not, there's not a lot of, you know, hurry up and Urgency. go. It's, yeah. I mean, even when Gandalf comes back to talk to Frodo about the ring, yeah. like, I mean, he shows up and he just like hangs around and waits till after breakfast the next day <laughs> before yeah. he gets around to talking about the ring. Which I kind of like that because it kind of adds this sense of scale of like, this is a thing. This is a story that is taking place over so much time. Right. It's so epic. That even the small details like waiting till breakfast the next day matters to say that like it is urgent, but like urgent in a very different way mm-hmm. because he knows that there is time, but like time, it's it's like Gandalf has a different perspective on time. Right. Absolutely. Uh, than the well, rest of us. And mm-hmm. you, I mean, you're getting into the Silmarillion, correct? Haven't you been? Yeah, I, I started listening to that audiobook. Right. Because I mean Gandalf's been around since before the world was. Yes. So yes. <laughs> or at least, you know, who the the, form the, the being who became Gandalf the for spe- this period sort of, of time. Spirit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's a very different sense of time. So I kinda like that detail in the storytelling almost of mm-hmm. like he isn't 
urgent or pushy and um I, I, I was about to say like I feel like he kind of has more patience in the book but like he has the same amount of patience in the movies I think it's just they have mm-hmm. to up it so then it got me thinking like what characters are different I don't know characters come to mind that are like any different um it, like the characters that are in the movie I wouldn't mm-hmm. I think they were all adapted pretty well yeah. nothing stands out to me as like I can't believe that they didn't make Pippin like this. Yeah. Um, Pippin's so pretty much Pippin. That's what I appreciate. Because that was kind of a worry. Mm-hmm. My worry was going to be after reading the books that I was going to dislike the movie mm-hmm. more now. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like yeah. I, that I was going to look at the movie from a different light in a more negative light because mm-hmm. of something that they did wrong. But they at least... It, it became clear that like they got all the characters pretty spot on. Yeah. Which is a very, very good thing because that would have ruined the movies for me. If I would have gone back, found out that Tolkien's interpretation of these characters are entirely different. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. Peter Jackson, yep. Peter Jackson deserves all the credit in the world for his attention to who these characters were. Mm-hmm. Although I did feel like Mary was a little more of a grown-up at the beginning of the book than he was at That's the beginning true. of the movie. Mary, Mary seems like the most responsible yeah, <laughs> out like, of all of them. I, I think, um, you know, they needed somebody for Pippin to kind of foil off of for the sake of the movie, so I understand why they kind of went that direction. Um, and because Mary makes some really stupid blunders <laughs> later on, like, it kind of fits... But at the beginning of the story, like Mary, I think is a little a little more grown up than than he kind of is at the beginning. I mean, rather at the beginning of the book, he's a little more adult about the way he looks at things. He's the one who's kind of been planning this whole "we're going with Frodo" thing. You know what's kind of weird that I'm thinking about um, in the book? I get the impression that Frodo is better friends with Mary and Pippin. Than he is with Sam. Mm-hmm. Like I, I get this sort of impression that Sam really is just the gardener, yeah. um, at least at the beginning. Yeah. Well, which I think it's okay because you can see the relationship start to develop even more, and it is clear that, that that Frodo has a deep love for Sam. But there is this like clearly established, and this is just with the details of the book. There is a clearly established like social structure mm-hmm. between the two of them. Right. Like the back. The, mm-hmm. the, um, Frodo is, is well off. Bilbo and Frodo are pretty well off. And so there, there's a sort of like history yeah. and culture and the, this thing between them. Like he calls him like Mr. Frodo. Like I, I know they call him yeah. each other like Mr. But he calls him Mr. Frodo because like he's basically Frodo's servant. Well, right? yeah. And that's one thing that they really didn't do in the movie. They really didn't talk about the ages of the hobbits. Yeah. But uh, Frodo and, is, and is older than the other yeah. hobbits. Frodo is way older, and, and Sam is almost like, you get this impression that Sam's like his servant, he's kind of following him around, and it's, it's mm-hmm. and, and, and it's not as loving, and I kind of like that about the movies a bit more, mm-hmm. that because they don't go into the detail of their social structured relationship and the ages and stuff like that, I'm able to watch the movie and then just kind of get this feeling and assume, okay, they're best friends. Right. That, I, I and I think they sense. kind of give that um, a little more yeah. like in the Hobbiton scenes, you know, he's kind of, he's, he's just kind of chumming around with all of them. 
Right. And, and, and exactly. And like I said, like in the book, it's, mm-hmm. I get the impression that like Mary's his best friend. Yeah. When you don't have really time to kind of for those relationships to change a whole lot by the time they get to Brie. No. Yeah. By the time they get to Brie, it's. You know, and um, that's the thing. In, in the book, by the time they, you know, they've already done a whole lot of things by the time they get to Brie. Things have kind of changed a little bit. You haven't really seen, you know, the journey has, you know, just barely started yeah. um, in, in the movie. So I think just for the sake of kind of condensing the story, but I think you're right. It is the, the relationship yeah. is, is a little different. And, and, and I, I do, I think that I'm with you. Said, I do kind of prefer Mary and it. Pippin are more important in the book, mm-hmm. yeah. which I like, because I like those characters. I feel like they mm-hmm. have a true purpose. Yeah. Well, and they there. do, and and you in 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 the books, of course, you haven't read them all, so you haven't seen right. all this. And I'm only going to get like shortly into this tonight. But I'm I, not worried about spoilers. There's this whole the scene <laughs> left off the end of Return of the King where they get to kind of have this triumphant return to the Shire as heroes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's kind of that's really the really? end of the story for them, yeah. where they've learned so much and become such different people along the way mm-hmm. and they come back and of course the Shire has been caught up in the war and yeah. they get an opportunity to free the Shire from its occupation and become heroes really? themselves uh, and of course you know Mary and Pippin go on to be buried at the side of Aragorn yeah. down the road you know this is wow. um, there's so that's what and that's what I'm saying that and that's not even in the the last book that's just in the, in the appendix in the appendix which mm-hmm. there's just so much more information there mm-hmm. but it it's yeah. I think in the in the book and of course we're talking about Fellowship of the Ring and not Return of the King tonight but yeah I mean Mary's and Pippin's story because it wasn't the main point of the movie but Mary's and Pippin's story doesn't get kind of fully completed Mm -hmm. their journey of who they become. Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting because they still all get their moment of, no, I'm going with you in Rivendell. Um, Mm -hmm. But in the books, they actually all sort of make that stand back in Hobbiton. They don't just sort of fall into it. They're like, no, this is the plan. He's going to stay here and pretend to be you. And we're going with you. The end. You don't get to argue. Um, and I do like that they still managed to retain that. Like whenever they, in Rivendell, they're like, okay, whenever they're, they, we're coming too. But I think it's interesting, kind of an interesting, um, stylistic choice that they just, you know, that they kind of moved that around. But it's also a testament to how well thought out things were that they still gave them the opportunity to not just be dragged along, but to actually be like committed of their own volition. Right. Um, all right, so so next, I kind of wanted to kind of get into some of the things that that were left out, and of course, the big one, the one that comes up the most often, especially in regards to this first movie, is everything revolving around Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil. Yeah. <laughs> hey ho! So I, I wanted to get y'all's thoughts, and I, I'll start with you, DJ. What um, I mean, what are your thoughts on one about that being left out? And two, just that scene and, and everything that goes on there. There's a lot of important stuff in the book happens during that portion of the story. Yeah, it's, uh, when I first uh, 
went to see the movie, I was like, oh man, all right, uh, I, I know this is kind of in the area of uh, where they meet him, and he was a, one of my favorite characters mm-hmm. uh, in the books. I, I, I just, I, I, for some reason, just kind of latched on to him, uh, but uh, yeah, he was just like this quirky uh, character that just, you know, uh, it just fit in very well. Mm-hmm. Uh so I was, uh, you know, I was kind of shocked to see it, but yeah, again, for time uh, and to move the story along and to avoid some of those, uh, you know, peaks and valleys and just hit the highlights, uh, I can understand why they did that. Uh, you know, it's I can always go back and revisit him when I read the book, right. uh, so it's not that uh, not that big of a deal. Um, but yeah, I. It would have been nice to see him in there, uh, and I think he wasn't mentioned until was it Return of the King that he was mentioned in the movie. Mm, I, I don't think remember. They I've, mentioned him, yeah, just, just a just, briefly, yeah, just kind of name dropped. Yeah, uh, but you know, we uh, you know we didn't get to see uh, him uh, save the day uh, with uh, Old Man Willow. Uh, where uh, he went in and saved uh, Mary and Pippin. Um, you know, uh, he he had some really cool traits. You know, uh, you know he wasn't uh, affected by the ring mm-hmm. uh, at all, uh, which would have been cool, uh, you know, to see. Uh, so if we could have had like a five-hour, six-hour extended cut, then sure, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. put him in there. Uh, but that's, that's impossible. So, right. um, you know, sad to see him not in there, but he's still in the books and still plays a major part. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such an interesting character and, and one that if you do read the histories, the histories of middle earth offer absolutely no explanation mm-hmm. for Tom Bombadil or who he is or, or, or Goldberry or either. Yeah. She's the river woman's daughter. Well, what the it's a lot like the hobbits though like where do they come from well they're men you know like where where do they you know there's just very but they're they're never like it's never spelled out for you it's just this no but in the histories they talk about them they are men really yeah they're halflings they are men though okay Hmm. Um, which is why they're still around and the Shire during, you know, at least the beginning of the Age of Men. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, they were always a stand-in for the British country folks, mm-hmm. the the land that Tolkien loved as a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, David, you were not expecting Tom Bombadil. No, I was about to say, <laughs> that was the first, I was going to bring it up, when you ask, like, you know, what were the big differences that stood out? But I knew we were going to have a whole section on Tom because mm-hmm. it is the biggest thing. That was the first real, like, uh, bump in the road, I guess, that I yeah. felt. I'm like, okay, so they're going, they're going. Tom, what? They're in the the old forest. Tom bump. Wait, what are they doing? What? And then it like <laughs> lasts for several chapters. Yeah, it does. And I'm like, yeah. Wait a minute, what the hell is going on? I mean, like, this is fun i i enjoy the character i think it's adds a lot of context like lots of history and little little bits of stuff about what's going on about the outside world outside of hobbiton it it kind of felt 
like the first time um, that these hobbits are like really about like experiencing the outside world. Right. Uh, like they're like, this is their first big jump into it. Um, I get, I understand why it was cut because they are sort of able to take those moments and feelings and spread them out to other parts of the film. Uh, all the, all the, all the reasons that I could imagine Tom needing to be in the film, they were able to fulfill other places mm-hmm. for the overall story. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was the that was the big bump in the road. I was like, "Who the hell is Tom Bombadil?" <laughs> uh, but I still chapters that I enjoyed. I, I did enjoy listening to them, mm-hmm. and um, I I am happy that they are a part of the book story. Mm-hmm. I think it adds a lot. Uh, I, I read something about that because I, earlier I was actually reading about differences between stuff and and trying to refresh my memory and kind of wondering uh, what other people thought about it. And I found a quote from a screenwriter that said that those chapters feature a lot of false starts for Hmm. Frodo's journey. A lot of like, uh, I guess what, what the screenwriter, what the quote was getting at was there, there's a lot of like, all right, and this is what the story's about. And then it's, 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 kind of not i guess what she was getting at mm-hmm. yeah. um so i guess that kind of makes sense and and like i said i understand why they why they cut it still i did enjoy it right now there are some things connected to that point and of course by the time you get to tom bombadil i mean you've already spent a night in the company of elves mm-hmm. you know yeah you, you've, yeah you, you've had your first brush with real danger and Old Man Willow, of course, that's where we first meet Tom. And not to mention having dinner with Farmer Maggot. Farmer dinner with Farmer Maggot. Yeah, yeah that's the that's like the most essential part. Of right. Mm-hmm. Who you know in, <laughs> in the movie we're all, we're only given this moment of oh it's Farmer Maggot run. Yeah. Uh, yeah which none of that's in the books, but uh, I think it's there's some talk in somewhere that Frodo used to steal mushrooms from Farm Farmer Maggot as a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I but love the Tom Tom Bombadil talks about Farmer Maggot with a lot of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which says a lot for someone who's been there since the, you know, before there were, before that's the a, beginning. That's a of big the first example age. of like the. Why are we talking so much about Farmer Maggot? But that's like the every character has a story, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. A long and of course, backstory. you know, I think the biggest scene, the first real, real brush with danger in the Barrow Downs. Yeah. Yeah. The Barrow Whites. Yeah. With the I, Barrow Whites. Yeah. I feel like the, the depiction of the Barrow Whites um, had a lot of influence for how Frodo sees the ring wraiths whenever he's wearing the ring. I yeah. feel like it's very Barrow White-ish. Mm-hmm. What I mean, what did y'all think about that? I mean, of course, you know that's of course that's where our hobbits get their swords initially, mm-hmm. rather than Aragorn just giving them swords. Yeah. Because apparently Aragorn's yeah. just carrying around <laughs> uh, these elvish blades, you know. But yeah. and and of course the swords given to them in the book are Numenorean blades, right? Which we've you know we don't talk about just a whole lot in these movies uh, mm-hmm. about uh, Numenor at all. But 
Um, what did y'all think about the that that particular instance? Because I think we kind of replaced that instance of danger with, of course, the Black Riders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and again, this is another scene that uh, you know in the book. Tom Bombadil saves the day again, mm-hmm. and you know. So if they're not going to have it in the movie, they have they'd have to take out this scene as well. Uh, I was really wanting to see more of the Barrel White uh, ring rates, something along those lines in the movie, and but we really didn't get much. Uh, we get a brief explanation of some of it at, at the beginning, uh, but. Yeah, it's really not uh, not brought up. And you have the Dark Riders in the movie, uh, which uh, was one of the first uh, evils that they faced. But yeah, this is um, you know when they uh, this uh, the Barrow Downs was a was a peaceful place to to start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know when uh, uh, Witch King of Angmar uh, cursed people, this is where they went to rest and. Uh, you know, it just, it wasn't that way, uh, once they got there. And, um, so yeah, I, I thought it was a, it's a crucial scene in the book and to kind of have it missing from the movie and, you know, to kind of have it p- just pieced together and, uh, right. Well, you know, they didn't get the knives here. So, oh man, how are they going to get the knives? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we'll just pull it out of our bag of holding and, <laughs> you know, just, uh, <laughs> You know, he's got plenty of stuff in there, and we just go from there. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I, I really wish we could have seen more of uh, the Barrow White, um, but unfortunately, you know, we got what we got. Yeah, yeah and I do feel like, scary. yeah, it is kind of scary. I also feel like we got a little bit of that kind of vibe in the Hobbit movies, whenever they find the 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 wraiths the you know they they go to angmar and they find that the the wraiths have broken out i feel like they have a mm-hmm. lot of that kind of vibe going on there yeah. i i feel like that um that whole sequence was really kind of inspired by the barrow whites and, and kind of all the things that are happening there right and that's another extended is that an extended cut i think scene? so okay. yeah so overall when when you talk about fellowship of the ring what is the overarching theme of this chapter of the story? That's a big question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know, because I can look at the whole series mm-hmm. and say that I think the theme is of love and good versus evil and love overcoming uh, evil and, and, and a friendship and stuff like that. When I look at just fellowship, um I guess the themes that I would take away from it are themes of uh, of wonder, of exploration, of imagination, of friendship. Mm-hmm. Still, I mean, that's one that overarches the whole thing. But I'd say friendship. It's about uh, unlikely people coming together. I mean, we haven't even really talked about. We've been really focusing on the hobbits. We haven't even brought up aragorn and legolas and and and, yeah, and everybody and, and, and that, all that that happens yeah um in towards like the latter half of the book yeah uh it's about all those people coming together 
And I'd say overall, like this, like the series is about unlikely people becoming friends mm-hmm. and themes like that. But in this one, all we're kind of seeing is the beginning of that. And they're not, I wouldn't call them all friends yet. Right. Uh, well, it, it's an interesting, it was, right. And, and that's part of what's interesting about the fellowship is it's a cross section of the population of middle earth who historically haven't cared for each other very much. They're all no, kind they of racist. Not. Like as in they think their race is like the end all. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, elves have existed since before the men and the dwarves awoke, mm-hmm. you know, and so they kind of look down on everybody. And the dwarves just think that the elves are the worst, and why can't everyone be as hardy and as cool as them? And men are just yeah. arrogant. Right. A different kind of men arrogant. Men just ruin everything. <laughs> yeah. Different kind of arrogant than the elves, though. But the elves, like, the, the thing is that the arrogance of the elves is part of the reason that they're fading. Right. Is there... Well, well and that's the whole interesting thing with elves. I mean, with men, as we look at men as the most flawed group mm-hmm. in some ways... But because they they're the ones that are kind of responsible for the current state of things, right? And you know you but you look at men and and then you get in when you read back into the histories and they're they're Iluvatar's favorite creation. Mm-hmm. They're the reason he created it. It's uh, you know. Of course, you know you get into a lot of echoes of Christian theology in there. You know, of course, from Tolkien's Catholic faith, but it's very interesting to see these groups together. And of course, when we first meet Strider, Strider's a very interesting character, and I, I think he's actually might even be a little more interesting in the book. Um, I would say so. There's that really great scene, or you say scene? It's it's in the book, so. But there's this great moment in the book where, you know, the the hobbits think he's pulling out, you know, he's pulling out a sword. Yeah. And it's the broken sword. Mm-hmm. It's the broken shards of Narsil. And right. He's, he's basically presenting that as, look, I'm no, I'm no danger to you. Mm-hmm. My sword, I don't even have a sword that yeah. works. Yeah. So, uh, to for me, one of the themes... Uh, of the book is accepting your destiny mm-hmm. and your fate mm-hmm. and or the hand that you are dealt and making the best of that situation and seeing it through mm-hmm. that's to me that is uh the fellowship of the ring in a nutshell uh, between every character they have to accept the mission that they're on and at all costs, they have to Mm -hmm. try to finish out that uh, mission, whether it's taking care of each other, uh, whether it's uh, being the ring bearer, uh, you know, uh, whether it's guiding uh, them through hostile lands uh, or just being a a support character. uh, They all have their role that they're supposed to do. And instead of, well, that's not really what I want to do, or that's not something that I, uh, you know, that's beneath me, Mm -hmm. uh, or whichever, uh, they all resign to, yes, this is my task, uh, and I will do my best to complete that task. 
and yeah, and to me, that's uh, one of the more important things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think this this moment of you know I don't know this for sure, but I think this moment of you know decision making to go on this journey to do this great deed mm-hmm. is a reflection of the way that first really British soldiers felt mm-hmm. when they resigned themselves to go fight the Germans in World War One. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's, we're going to, we're going to make history. We're going to be part of this big moment. We're going to go do this momentous world changing thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you, it, it reminds me, you know, it's like, I hear, I hear my grandfather in my head um, saying, well, you just got to do what you got to do. You know, everything, every obstacle you come up against in life, he says, well, just got to do what you got to do. That's all you can do. <laughs> but I really... That's, a, that's fun. Yeah. You know, and I, uh, when I was younger, I kind of thought that he was dismissing, like, whatever I felt like my great trials were in life. But now, like, uh, especially understanding all the things that he's been through in life. I mean, he's been through some stuff. Um, and you know, like all you can do is get up every morning and do the right thing, do the best thing that you know how to do and do the next thing. And I have more and more appreciation for that the older I get. Um, and I really feel like that's kind of what all these characters have going on. Like you said, um, DJ, you know, they're just sort of all playing the hand they're dealt. They're just doing what they have to do. It's like, okay, this ring has to be destroyed. There isn't an option. And so you can call it heroic, you can call it brave, but it's really just practical. Mm-hmm. And none of them view mm-hmm. themselves necessarily as heroic or brave at the time as much as it's got to be done. Yeah. And there's nobody else to do it. You yeah. know, and so I will take yeah. the ring even though I do not know the way. So yeah. I will give you my my sword and my axe and my bow, mm-hmm. and that's a that is a great observation, DJ. I really really like that, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's it's very true. And and that makes me think about how not everybody in the group necessarily had the same goal at first, but they had to kind of come together. I'm mainly thinking about Boromir. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, some mm-hmm. of them are like, "I'm going alone to make sure y'all don't screw this up." Right, like yeah. uh, Gimli says, <laughs> "I'm going because I don't trust you dwarves." Yeah, I mean, exactly. dude, I don't trust you elves. Yeah, th- they go into this feeling like, like uh, as DJ said, though they have to accept their destiny. So maybe they're going into it with this different preconceived notion, like. Gimli's going because he doesn't trust elves, and Boromir's going because really he wants to get that ring. So they have those like preconceived notions of what is right and what they have to do, and and it's about learning to accept your destiny and learning what to accept what's really going on and putting aside all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, Boromir sadly does not do that until it is too late. Um, right. And I think it's – I wanted to bring up Boromir because yeah. I personally found that I think I enjoyed his character more in the movie hmm. than in the book. I think that it was done better in the movie personally. I feel that way. 
And maybe it's just because Sean Bean's performance is that perfect. Mm-hmm. But I got this, I don't know, from the books, I got this sort of... Now, am I remembering this, misremembering this correctly? But we didn't even, like, firsthand see Boromir's death in the book, did we? Hmm. I don't remember. I should remember um, this, but I don't think so. I think we're just, I think it's referenced. I, I don't, I don't we think. We get a we long like, description of his burial. Right. But I we didn't, was thinking that it was, it was at the beginning of the two towers, not the fellowship, but I could be wrong uh, on that. I, I thought, it, I thought the, in the book, they get into it there. Oh, well in the movie, like a it's, recap. Yeah, in the movie it's at the end of Fellowship. Right. Yeah, in the book, okay. in the in the movie, in the books don't match up exactly. They don't exactly split oh, okay. in the same we'll spot. See. I haven't and started two yes, hours yet. Uh, but. but even if it is just a recap, I mean, I would imagine that seeing it firsthand really finalizes his redemption arc really well. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you basically, it's, yeah, I think you basically get a discussion about Boromir's death. Mm-hmm. That sucks. In I mean, the like, two I towers. get it. Like, I mean, like, okay, I'm sure it's a great discussion. I'm sure it's a very well-written discussion. But I, I loved seeing Boromir's death firsthand. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I saw it with my own eyes that he knew the error of his ways fully. Mm-hmm. He fully understood what was wrong. And he is going to redeem himself by dying for them to make sure that Frodo escapes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. I don't know. For some reason, just in the movies, Boromir worked better for me. I, I think I, there's I, just I left, more of Boromir. There, there is more of Boromir. I think he's done better. I left the movie with Boromir as one of my favorite characters because yeah. he's the most human. I mean, he is like the representation of, yeah, you have Aragorn there, but Aragorn's like half human, half well, well, and he he represents Aragorn represents the good, the very best. in humanity, the very best of humanity, and Boromir represents the base, you know, the same spirit that led to men taking the ring and trying to use it for their own in the first place. Yeah, uh, yeah. he's the real rapper. You have Legolas representing the elves. You have Gimli representing the dwarves. In my mind, Boromir was the real representation of the men. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, Aragorn is is there because he feels that it's at least partially his responsibility to see to see this deed done because of his ancestors. Right. Mm-hmm. And but the truth is, is that Aragorn only wanted to just live out his life and be forgotten about. Yeah. Right. And that the thing, like DJ said, he has to, this is the start of him accepting his destiny mm-hmm. as a king. Like the, the path that he embarks on in this story is what will lead him to taking up his mantle as the king. He can't just live out his life anymore. Mm-hmm. He has to accept his destiny. Yeah. Yep. Again, again with the, the destiny thing. Yeah, that's a that's a great theme, and I think that's very true. I I, I hadn't seen it from that perspective, but now that I have, I really I really enjoy that perspective. Mm-hmm. All but, right, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I feel like the um, the 
depiction of Boromir is definitely more sympathetic in the movies. And I think, I think yeah. it is largely Sean Bean. However, and we'll get to this later, Faramir, way more better in the books. <laughs> really? Okay. The brother? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But we'll go there later. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of... I mean, there are t- characters that are... In addition to Tom Bombadil, I mean, there's a lot of characters that le- are left out that are pretty interesting characters. Shout out Glorfindel. Glorfindel, yeah. Uh, so, and, and actually, I, let's, real quick, I mean, what did you... Because I, I know, David, you experienced it for the first time. And of course, what did y'all think about using Arwen much, much more in the movie than she actually appears in the book. Because if you recall, well, it's Glorfindel that shows up in the book and yeah, saves Frodo right. and throws, jumps off his horse, throws Frodo on his horse and sends the horse off to return home with yeah. Frodo. Okay. Okay. I got confused for a second because yeah. I was thinking of Eowyn because there's mm-hmm. so many, because the names are so similar. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh my God! Why are there so many A names in this freaking story? <laughs> um, so I was like, she wasn't in this one, was she? Arwen okay. and Eowyn, yeah. just for fun. Um, sounded like you had some thoughts there, DJ. Sorry to interrupt. No, that's fine. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it. They Glorfindel is uh, not in the movie. I don't guess at all. No. Um, neither are uh, Arwen's uh, brothers. Uh, I do not, hate uh, that they're not in there either. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, Elor and, uh, Eliadon, uh, were, uh, Arwen's bro- twin brothers, but they weren't, again, they, you know, he just talks, uh, Elrond is, you know, talks about, uh, his daughter, but doesn't mention any of the other ones. But, uh, yeah, uh, and I can understand that the, uh, they needed to give Arwen something other than, uh, just being, uh, you know, a, a, a love interest uh, type character for uh, Aragorn. I mean, right. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, not saying she wasn't important in the books, but she definitely gains a lot more power and a lot more. Uh, deeds are assigned to her mm-hmm. in the movie that went to other characters, uh, and I can understand that. And especially for uh, for movies when you're having to eliminate, you know, characters. Well, all right. Well, this happened. Well, who can who's around that we can assign this task to? Well, right. We'll give it to Arwen. She's already going to be right. in there anyway. You know. Uh, so you know, I I I like. The fact that they made her more of an interesting character in the movies. Yeah, she was kind of just a prop uh, in the books. Like to, yeah, I, I still would have liked to see uh, like at least Glorfindel in the book or in the movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, um, you had to pick and choose. Right, uh, and and I guess you know having Glorfindel show up, and then you've got to stop and explain who this guy is that's not going to be around later. Right. Yeah. And um, that's the thing where you so can introduce Arwen, you can, you know, elevate the character a little bit, make her a little more interesting um, to the viewer. And I understand why they did it. Now, uh, Glorfindel is a very cool character. Mm-hmm. 
who actually hope to see covered if this Amazon Lord of the Rings thing ends up being worth watching or even ever gets finished. <laughs> I hope that Glorfindel shows up. If I'm not mistaken, Glorfindel is the last really living person in Middle-earth to slay a Balrog. Hmm. Interesting. So you're talking about, yeah. you know, among the elves, one of the, the greatest elven warriors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I uh, thought he was a really cool it, character. Uh, even his sword play, I think, was uh, taken over. Yes, I know Legolas had his bow, but he was also, uh, you know, I, I think he, they really assigned a lot of the characteristics of Glorfindel to uh, at least two other characters, Legolas and Arwen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because yeah, we, uh, it, Legolas was mainly just a bowman, and yeah, and then and kind of boring, very proficient in just about anything that he picked up. Yeah, I mean, like I do feel like kind of giving him some of of, of Glorfindel's um, attributes. You know, I mean, Legolas was really boring in the books. Like he's just kind of there. And he, he does, you know, he shoots things occasionally. But he's, like, just not that interesting in the books. And so I feel like they kind of needed to... They're, they're big characters. I mean, you can only have so many characters that you really follow in a movie. And so if you have to narrow it down, I think it's, it's um, forgivable to give some of the more interesting attributes of a, a character that you're not going to use to... Some characters that just are a little lackluster. Yeah. In the in the books. All right. So as we kind of wrap up, we're kind of running out of time. So as we look at wrapping up tonight, does anybody have any like really favorite moments in this book or in this movie that you want to mention that we haven't talked about? Hmm. I think in both the movie and the book, one of the best scenes in movie history. And then I'm not going to be so uh, uh, presumptuous as to say one of the best scenes in literature history, because I've seen a lot more movies than I've read books. But one of the best scenes is just the formation of the fellowship. Uh, I think it is a wonderfully it's epic while also like being very like, it's kind of like not epic in the sense of they're just discussing something, you know? Right. And it's not, it's not the end of the movie or the book. It's not like the big final thing, but it is just like what that scene means to me is really important. Um, the beginning of this friendship, this, this legendary friendship uh, all starts right there. People like Gimli who are just like, um, just don't want the elves to screw it up. But then you have people who, like Aragorn, who are genuinely like, I want to help, and I want to make sure that this gets done, and I want to be there for Frodo. And then you have Merry and Pippin, not, we're re absolutely refusing to let their friends go into danger without them. Mm -hmm. I, I think it is a, is a wonderful moment um, that 
is handled in both the book and the movie like exceptionally well. And the movie is just even better because you have the wonderful music and and visuals and everything. So that's that's probably my favorite moment. That's the moment that I I, I like to rewatch mm-hmm. a lot, and, mm-hmm. and it's one of the reasons uh, that I would call Fellowship like potentially my favorite movie of the three. And that's a big deal because like I love all three of those movies. Yeah. Uh, probably that that stands out to me the most. Okay. Something about that scene just really works for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um. So. I I love the the summation that even the smallest person can change the course of the world. Yeah. I think that's a such a. I don't think that Tolkien actually said it. I think that was kind of an adaption of kind of the sentiments expressed in the book. But um, that is something that the screenwriters did such a great job of just sort of distilling these long, you know, thoughtful segments into just like a phrase. And I feel like that one just sums up the first part of the story so perfectly. Yeah. It's interesting. It's this whole idea of like, I'm just not really worthy of this task. Mm-hmm. And it's just really not up to you to decide if you're worthy of this task. It's the one you've got. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, something that uh, would have been uh, cool to see uh, in the movie uh, that was in the book, um, uh, I would have loved to have seen Radagast in, yep. uh, in the movie. Uh, he was he was in the book, you know, when um, uh, I guess at the beginning of the movie when Gandalf leaves, he says that he's going to go consult Saruman, uh, you know, and then leaves. Uh, in the books, Radagast it was told by Saruman to go get Gandalf and tell him to go to Isengard. Uh, but I just I love the character portrayal. Uh, that they did in the movies for Radagast, and I would have loved to have seen him, um, you know, uh, in the Fellowship. I think that would have been pretty cool. Um, the only other thing that I was thinking of that, uh, you know, was really changed and it was kind of surprising uh, was, and I think, uh, now I'm trying to remember if this was even in Fellowship now that I'm thinking about it, Um was when they do uh, when they have the ends. Was that in two towers or was that at? That yeah. might have been two towers. Yeah, that's now two that towers. About it because the lines kind of cross. Right. Oh man. Um, yeah, that's but anyway, uh, I'll, I'll bring it up anyway. The ends uh, when they have their meeting, uh, they're more willing to stand up and fight, and it just shows how. Even things in nature, such as the ants, uh, are willing to stamp out uh, this evil. Uh, in in the movie, uh, I guess it was Two Towers. Uh, you know, it took a lot of convincing for them to uh, actually do that. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing I'll bring up uh, was. Uh, and this will probably blow a lot of people's minds in the fellowship of the ring. Aragorn is really 87 years old. Right. Uh And most people, when they just read the, or watch the movies, you know, he's, he's young. Right. Because of the type of 
uh, race that he was, you know, it, he was uh, more of a superior warrior and lived three times as long as normal humans. Uh, so, it, which really, you know, if they were to try to set that up, you know, would really screw up with the timeline of the movie, uh, where <laughs> right. it looks not that much of a, a, a of a deal. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, there, there's a mind blowing fact for you mm-hmm. uh, in the beginning of uh, Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, their uh, Aragorn is 87 years old, and, and Bill uh, I mean, Frodo is what 50. Yeah, something <laughs> yeah. like that. I think that they explain Aragorn's age in a scene in the Two Towers, but it's only part of the extended editions, mm-hmm. right? And it's oh, like wow. one scene, but it, but no, but you're still right. You're still right for saying that because like, if you just watch the theatrical movies, you have no idea. Um, yeah. But it's in an extended edition in one scene in, in a conversation with Eowyn <laughs> yep. around horses. He's like, yeah, I'm like 90 years old. It might even be in Return of the King because it might be when they're getting ready for the I battle. Think I don't mm-hmm. Well, because she's commenting like, I heard them say that you rode with my grandfather, but you can't possibly right. be that old. And he's like, well, I did. And she's like, well, you can't be 60. And he just kind of looks at her. You can't be 70. Are you 80? You know, yeah. that's yeah, I'm, kinda... I'm pretty sure it's in Return of the King right before he heads Jesus. into the mountain pass. Well, there you go. Yeah. So it's like, it, so you're still right with your observation, DJ, because in the movies, it took them three movies to do it. <laughs> and then it was deleted. So, right. And I was always confused as hell until I saw that scene in Return of the King, the extended right. editions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, that's the one thing. And of course, there's no way to do it like they did in the book, because there's no room for the sheer volume of exposition. Right. That yeah. Tolkien includes in his writing. Without it being contrived. And right. And so it's, uh, you, you lose sight of a lot of things. Like mm-hmm. the fact that Gandalf's not just an old man. Right. Like he's, yeah. He's an immortal that's been around Forever. since before the world was created. Mm hmm. Yeah, um, and I didn't truly comprehend that until I started reading some of Yeah, I mean mm-hmm. they're they're the um the the wizards, the um Ishtari. The Ishtari are basically stand ins for archangels. Mm-hmm. 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 But wa- but yeah. the exposition that they did decide to pull out, at th- what a masterful stroke to make that what Ten minutes of exposition at the beginning of the movie that, actually work. It shouldn't work. That should be some of the most boring stuff ever committed to we, film. We actually should mention that before we wrap up. That prologue at the beginning of the movie. So good. With, uh, oh. Was it Galadriel that was? Yeah, there? with Galadriel filling us in on the history of the ring. Mm-hmm. So beautifully yeah. done. Um, oddly enough, they started off with uh, Frodo. That's so weird. Uh, doing that intro, doing that prologue. And then somewhere along the way, they realized that they couldn't have <laughs> the character of Frodo knowing that much about the history of the ring. Because so they had to introduce it to him. Then they took it completely out. Mm-hmm. And then they ended up coming back and having it redone with Galadriel telling the history of the ring, which makes way more sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So so perfect. And like I said, it should. I mean, it's just pure exposition. 
And you know, I mean, what show don't tell, right? That's the that's the line, right? But th- they manage to hook you in with this exposition that, and then totally change gears and and show up in Hobbiton, right? Um, and it the fact that they managed to pull that off and make it work is a testament to the writing and the directing. Yeah. Yeah, of all the additions that were made, I think that prologue is mm-hmm. probably the best. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree. Because it eliminates then all the exposition that that they get in um, it, in it, Rivendell in the book. Right, and it at least tells you everything you need to know about why this is bad. Why this ring is bad. Yeah. So. Anyway, um, I think that's going to wrap us up. I mean, obviously, I think we could talk about, you know, each of these stories, each of these pieces of the Lord of the Rings story for hours and hours. And, of course, <laughs> there are podcasts dedicated to doing that every week. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I think that's, I think we've talked in an hour, almost an hour and a half about, I think we've reached a good stopping point. So, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Of course, we will be back next week to talk more Lord of the Rings, and uh, we're looking forward to it. And of course, we want to hear from you. We want to, you know, we want to hear your thoughts on it. Send us a, a recording or just a, a message to the Science Fictionary at gmail.com and tell us what you thought about the Fellowship of the Ring. But until next time, DJ, remind everybody where they can find you. Uh, absolutely. So I am uh, Red for Charlie at uh, Twitter. Um, my podcast is uh, Rogue One Radio with uh, Steve Long and uh, also the newly rebranded uh, Star Wars and Beyond uh, podcast. Uh, yeah, so uh, give me a shout on Twitter. And uh, yeah, anything that you want to hear us talk about or hear me talk about, just let me know. Excellent. All right, Marisha. Um, you can find me on my website, princessesandpadawans.com. I am on Instagram at princesses underscore and underscore padawans. And I'm P Padawans on Twitter. And David, where can people find you? You guys can find me on Twitter, making great April Fool's jokes at David underscore JG Peoples. All right, and I'm Andrew Gore. You can find me running the Twitter account for this show at Sci underscore Fictionary. You can drop us a line at thesciencefictionary at gmail.com. As always, please go check out red5network.com and at red5network on Twitter for all of the rest of the Red 5 family of podcasts. And until next time, remember, never laugh at live dragons.